welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. Open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, you'll see the first word, finally. Now, that's not like a lot of preachers that say finally and then go on for another 30 minutes. It doesn't mean he's about to end the letter. Sometimes it's translated furthermore or let, you know, let, me, let me get to the point. Verse 1 says, finally, my brethren rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm more so circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. It was Friday night, time for some fun and fellowship. Three couples from their church went to treat themselves to a steak dinner when they arrived and being on a Friday night, it was crowded. They were assigned a number, uh, sent to a noisy, crowded room and told to wait there until the number was called. As they waited, a cocktail waitress came by and said, Welcome to happy hour. Would you like a drink? Well, the three couples graciously declined anything from the bar. Just waiting for a table, they said. Fifteen minutes later, waitress came by again, same invitation. Again, the couples informed her that they were waiting for a table. Five minutes later, she returned. One of the men had mentioned to the kindergarten teacher that their table was probably being delayed in hopes that they would order something from the bar first. So when the girl came by, the kindergarten teacher said, and, and this girl came by and said, welcome to happy hour. The kindergarten teacher informed her, girl, we are all Baptists. This is as happy as we're going to get. Get us a table. They did an extensive study in the United States several years ago, a leading polling agency, and questionnaires were distributed to people of various ages and occupations, and the question was, what are you looking for most in life? The results surprised them. Instead of it being a lot of materialistic goals, the top three things 
listed and wanted were love, joy, and peace. The first three listed fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy, and peace. And I want to ask you today, how joyful are you? One lady put an ad in the London Times, said, wanted by an invalid lady, a housekeeper, must be a good church woman to take care of the house and four servants, a cheerful Christian if possible. <laughs> well, I mentioned to you, Paul has come to the point. He's talked about a lot of things that Christ has done for us, and he gets to the point, and I want to remind you that Paul's in jail. He's awaiting trial. He hasn't got the best of circumstances, but he talks about having a life of joy. Your circumstances may not be good. I want to tell you there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness depends on your happenings, your, your circumstances. Not everybody's happy all the time. If you are, you're insane <laughs> because you're just not happy all the time. You can't be. But joy, joy, it comes from here. It comes from knowing Jesus. It comes from knowing the Lord. And so Paul mentions a life of joy. How do you do that? How do you have joy in your life? First of all, it's not found in human striving. It's not found in your own effort. He mentions rejoice or have joy, the word rejoice, at least 18 times in this letter. How do you do that? Well, I've already, he's already said the first part of it is, first of all, you rejoice in the Lord. Joy in the Lord under any and all circumstances is the keynote of this epistle. It has nothing to do with what you're going through in life. And the form of this verb is an imperative. It's a, it's a, um, it's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. It's present tense. Keep on rejoicing in the Lord. And the command to go on rejoicing is given to Christians. Lost people don't rejoice in the Lord. Oh, they may have PMA, positive mental attitude or positive thinking, but lost people can only think positive so far. But the Lord in our life, Paul is in the prison and he's, he's rejoicing the fact that he's saved. He's rejoicing in the fact that the Philippians are growing. He's rejoicing in the fact that the gospel is being presented, that saints are being encouraged. And he said, the worst thing that can happen to me is they'll kill me. And yet that's still good because I'm going to gain when I die. To rejoice in the Lord. He's repeating himself. He said, for to me to write the same things to you is not tedious or grievous. He admits, I'm repeating this. Why? Why would you keep on repeating rejoice in the Lord? Because the very foundation of the Christian life and the Christian walk is to walk in Him, to rejoice in the Lord. You don't rejoice in religion. You rejoice in the Lord. And folks, I want to tell you something. Rejoicing in the Lord is a safeguard for those who practice it. Because the Bible teaches a very important principle. The path of disobedience begins with discontent. If you don't rejoice in the Lord, you'll, you won't remain content. I've been told, I've not had one, 
In Africa, there is a fruit called the taste berry. And they claim that it changes a person's taste so that everything, including sour fruit, becomes sweet and pleasant for several hours after eating that berry. I can't tell you how many times that would have helped me. <laughs> Can you imagine eating a piece of fruit and then everything tastes good? But I want to tell you something. Rejoicing is the taste berry of the Christian life. Because when you can spend your day with gratitude and thankfulness and praise, even your sour circumstances can be a little sweeter. If you praise God for who He is and what He has done for you, gratitude will well up within you. And as a result, rather than asking God to remove your pain and suffering and trials from your life, you may find yourself praying that He accomplishes His will in the midst of all of that. I didn't say you had to like everything that's going on around you, but you rejoice in the Lord. And in verse 1 of chapter 3, you find a warm pastoral attitude from Paul, and then all of a sudden, he gets real serious. I mean, you can almost see his countenance change. You can imagine it changing. Because he goes three times in the verse 2 to the word beware. Beware of dogs. Isn't that interesting? You, you see that on people's yards, on, on their fences today. Beware of the dog. The tone with which he speaks of those who could lead the Philippians astray is hostile. It's militant. It's akin to the mood of Paul as he writes to the Galatian church. He's, he's saying, you rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, and listen, beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the mutilation or the concision, some of the translation says. What in the world is he talking about? Well, you rejoice in the Lord. The second thing is you reject the human rules. Beware of dogs. It speaks of their character. It's interesting. In Paul's day, dogs were more likely to be dirty, disease-carrying scavengers that roamed the streets in packs. A lot of them were in the garbage dumps, and they attacked people who crossed their paths. And this is what Paul had in mind when he says to the Philippians here, beware of these guys. Beware of these dogs. Interestingly enough, if you really wanted to insult by anybody in this day, a Jewish person would call, the, the, the worst name they could find would be a dog. The rabbis called the Gentiles they, that didn't believe in God dogs. I mean, it is a, it's, a play, it's, it's an interesting fact that, that these guys who think they're so good and so religious and so righteous, Paul said, you're the ones that have denied God. You're the ones that have denied Jesus. You're the dirty dogs. Pretty serious, isn't it? Then he talks about their methods, beware of evil workers. It's a play on words. Listen to me. It, these guys are so impressed or so adamant about keeping the rules and do, to do good works in order to be good with God. And Paul said, your works are evil. They're not good. 
They're good in your mind, but they're not good toward God. Because even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, Isaiah tells us. He calls them evil. They, he said, you introduce things to people and you keep these little meticulous things and you make up all these rules that you say are good that you can get yourself to God and really and truly you're leading people away from God. You see, they believed, they believed you could actually get to God on your own. That if you did enough outward signs and enough good works, they taught that obeying the laws would somehow make them sinless in God's eyes. That's the problem with legalism. It makes salvation difficult, but it is doable, according to them. Chuck Swindoll defines legalism as a man-made standard for the purpose of exalting self. Paul was upset because these people were not leading people to righteousness that is found in Jesus. They were leading people away from it. And then the third thing, he, 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 he mentions the error, beware of concision or mutilation. Now, now stay with me here. This is a little deeper than normal, but I want you to understand it because it even applies today. The hyper-legalists, the Judaizers, if you would call them, believed that salvation, you, you couldn't be a Christian unless you became a Jew. And to be a Jew, you had to be circumcised. Now, in Acts 15.1, it actually says some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. And these Judaizers were hyper-legalists who taught that salvation is a result of something we do instead of what God has done. Circumcision represented the first requirement of the law, and listen to me, it symbolized their approach to God. Symbolized. He's saying that the doctrine of circumcision was a mutilation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's saying these people who are telling you that you've got to do this are mutilating the gospel of Jesus Christ because faith in Jesus Christ is by his grace and faith in him. You, you don't do anything. Jesus has done it all. Jesus has paid it all. Now, they were saying that the physical symbol, listen to me, the physical symbol which circumcision is a physical symbol, was enough to ensure that they were included in the people of God regardless of how they acted or what was in their hearts. The problem was they forgot what all the prophets said, that it was a symbol. For example, Deuteronomy 10.16 says that circumcisions of the heart don't be a stiff-necked people. Or in Jeremiah 6.10 speaks of the uncircumcised ear, the ear that will not listen to the word of God. Or in Exodus 6.12, Moses talks about uncircumcised lips. So for centuries, Jewish leaders had seen that physical circumcision was nothing but a symbol. And they warned the people that the symbol is not the substance. What God actually required was concentration of the entire person. Now, you hear people today say, 
Well, it's not just Jesus. You have to be doing this or that. If you don't take, if, if you, I got to be careful because people, people have made baptism that way. Now, listen to me. Baptism does not save you. However, it's not optional. Jesus walked 30 miles to be immersed in the River Jordan. He wasn't sprinkled. He set the example for us, and he said, when you profess me before men, I profess you before my Father in heaven. When you give your life to Christ, you are the circumcision of the heart. The covering's removed. You've given your life to Jesus. It's shown in the baptistry, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and the, bear, the, the and what's happened in the life of your life. The old way of life is gone. You are raised to walk in newness of life. You are not saved in the water. You're saved by the Spirit of God. It's shown this way. Anybody tells you it's Jesus plus anything is mutilating the gospel. That's what he's talking about. It's just Jesus. It's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us because we want to, we want something we can measure. Some of us believe that, some people believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, but they got one foot still in the legalistic part. Well, I know I've been saved, but I got to do communion just right. I got to do this just right. I got to live this way. I don't, I don't do this. Now, you're going to say, well, you're giving everybody a license to sin. You really think so? You really think when the Holy Spirit lives in you, he's going to say, just go do what you want? No. The Spirit of God leads you. Even when the preacher's not there, you know it's wrong. It's amazing, isn't it? That's why Paul said, look, look, look with me. Verse 3, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, this reminds him of something. It reminds him of his past. And is another reason to rejoice in the Lord and to, to have a joy-filled life. You don't strive. You can't do it on your own. It's only in the Lord. And you also, it's not found in human superiority. Now, he takes a walk down memory lane, and, he, and, and here's what I call it. You, have you ever had anybody, guys, you know when you say, you know, you, you checked your man card at the door. You know what I'm talking about when you say that. In other words, you're doing something that's not manly. Y'all understand that, ladies? Y'all might, do y'all have a woman card? Yeah, Probably most women have a lot of woman cards. But, but you know what I'm saying? Well, Paul, I, I'm going to call it, he pulls his cards here. <laughs> he said, okay, you, have you ever met anybody that always has to one-up you on whatever you're talking about? You know, you tell them a story, they got one better. They did more than you. You ever known that? This is what Paul's going to say. You want to get in that contest? First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to pull my race card. Now, you and I, that would be a bad thing today, but not, not in this passage. You need to understand what he's doing. 
You see in verse Paul, in verse 5, Paul says, I was circumcised the eighth day. That was commanded by God to Abraham back in Genesis 17, 12. Paul says, makes it clear, he's not a descendant of Ishmael because the Ishmaelites were circumcised on their 13th birthday. And then if you were an adult and you wanted to become a Jewish, you had to be circumcised as an adult. Paul said, I'm not a proselyte to that. I was circumcised the eighth day, just like it was said, to, God told Abraham. And not only that, I'm of the stock of Israel. Now, this was a big deal because Israelites, any, you know, they, they trace it all the way back to Jacob in Genesis 32, 28, where Jacob had the wrestling match with God or the angel. The Ishmaelites would trace their heritage back to Abraham. The Edomites would go back to Esau, which was one of the sons of Isaac. But Israelite, when you say you're an Israelite, that was a big deal. And then... Let's take it a step further. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, not only was he an Israelite, Paul belonged to the elite of Israel because the tribe of Benjamin had a special place in the aristocracy of the Hebrew nation. You may remember from Sunday school that Benjamin was the child of Rachel, Jacob's first love, his favorite wife. And, and, that all of the, and, and that of all the 12 patriarchs, Benjamin alone had been born in the promised land. Genesis 35, 8, 17. And the tribe of Benjamin was the only one of two tribes that remained faithful to David's kingdom when the kingdom of Israel split in 1 Kings 12, 21. And according to Ezra 4, 1, it was also one of the tribes which formed the nucleus of the new Israel restored after coming back from Babylon and when Israel went into battle, it was the tribe of Benjamin which held the post of honor. The battle cry of Israel was, after thee, O Benjamin. It was from this tribe of Benjamin that the first king of Israel, Saul, came from. Probably Paul, whose original name was Saul, was probably named after that. And of course, Jesus changed his name. What, in other words, let me put it in terms you understand. You ever seen these bumper stickers that say native Texan? <laughs> or maybe you've seen one that said, I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> Reminds me of <laughs> a little boy was told by his dad, his dad said, son, don't ever ask anybody if they're from Texas. Why, Dad? He said, first of all, if they're from Texas, it won't take you long to know. And second law, secondly, if they're not from Texas, you don't want to embarrass them. <laughs> I am a native Texan, born in Fort Worth, proud to be one. I'm not looking down to anybody that got here as soon as they could. But you understand what, I'm what Paul's saying here. Listen, you want, to, you want to pull the race card. I'm an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin of the stock of Israel. That doesn't mean I'm right with God. And then, and then he pulls his religion card. Hebrew of the Hebrews. 
he was a descendant of the tribe of Benjamin from whom King Saul had descended. Sometimes we say he's a man's man. Well, Paul would say he's a, or we could say of Paul, he's a Jew's Jew, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He claimed not only to be a full-blooded Jew or, or uh, yeah, full-blooded, but he was, he was a Hebrew who never forgot the mother tongue, even though he was raised in a Gentile city called Tarsus. He obeyed the law, was circumcised at the uh, eighth day. Paul followed the law of Moses, separated as a Pharisee. And speaking of Pharisees, in verse 5, he said, I once was a Pharisee. Now, we think of a negative connotation when we hear that word today. But in that day, it wasn't negative. In fact, they were looked up to by many people. There weren't many of them. They were sort of like the religious Marines of the day. There were few and... They were proud. Their names mean separated ones, and they had separated themselves off from the common life and all the common tasks in order to make one aim and duty of their lives to keep every smallest detail of the law. Paul claims that not only was he a Jew who had retained his ancestral religion, but he was also devoted his whole life to serving God as a Pharisee. Pulled his religious card. Even today, you'll have people say, well, if you're not part of our Church, you're not going, or you can't be saved. I have a Hebrew word for that, Greek word, baloney. <laughs> he pulled his religiosity card. I mean, he wasn't just a Pharisee, he was a good one. He said, as to zeal, persecuting the church in verse 6. You know, every group have people that are outstanding in their field. Most are just average achievers. But Paul said, I was a high achiever. I was militant, opposed to any threat to the Hebrew faith. He helped the stoning of Stephen. He was there. He, he sought out, arrested in prison, probably had Christians executed who in his pharisaical mind were disobeying or threatening the law of God. If there had been newspapers or magazines at that time, his, his picture would have been on the front cover. It probably had religious zealot of the decade. His name was dropped by everybody and anybody that was in religious circles. But then I want you to look at verse 7 and tell me what's the first word. What's the first word in verse 7? But. All of those cards, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yeah, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge. And he goes on to say that I may gain Christ. So folks, listen to me quickly. You want a life of joy? It's only found in our heavenly Savior, Jesus Christ. You're not going to find joy any other place. The word for gain is plural. The word for loss is singular. So here's how it translates. For Christ's sake, I have learned to count my former gains, plural, a loss. Each of the outward privileges that he thought he had at one time, it would have been a distinct and separate gain. 
individual items of profit, all that's useless, he said. Because of Jesus. Too many of us have yet to appropriate this freedom-bringing, wing-giving truth. We have one foot of law in the law domain where we're doing, hoping that our doing will lead to our being righteous, and we forget that we are what we are because of Jesus alone. Now, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, you stay with me in the next five minutes. Because Paul said, I'm going to show you what I've gained. And this is the reason for you to rejoice no matter what your circumstances are right now. He said, first of all, is the excellence of his knowledge in verse 8. Knowledge means a personal response of faith in obedience to what God has revealed about himself in the Scripture. You know who Jesus is. Somebody told you about Jesus. You know who he is. You know he's coming back. You know you belong to him. You've got all your theology right because Jesus is the only way to be saved. And you know that. And not only that, you don't know about Jesus. You've committed your life to him. You know him. Other than that, you're just religious. Aren't you glad you know him? <laughs> you experience his righteousness. Romans 5, 12 to 21 says that we're all either in Adam or in Christ. When we were born, you were born in Adam. What does he mean? When Adam sinned, he cursed the whole world. You were born with a sinful nature. You were born in a sinful world. You were set apart. You, you were separated, I should say, from God by your sin. But the moment that you Turn from your sin, ask God to forgive you, place your faith in Jesus Christ. You experienced the righteousness of Jesus. God immersed you with the righteousness of Jesus. <laughs> Listen, some of you came to church today hoping you made some extra credit with God. You don't need any extra credit. You have the righteousness of Jesus. When God looks at you, he looks at you as if you've never sinned. Righteousness is often a legal term. It means that a judge would pronounce you righteous. You have been pronounced righteous. Do you understand you don't have to strive to make God love you more. You don't have to strive to make God accept you more. You have his righteousness. You have the excitement of his person to know him in a life-changing way. In verse 10, I, to, to know him in the power of his resurrection, I know Jesus. I'm so glad that you're growing in the Lord. You keep coming and you keep learning and you keep studying. You know Jesus. You don't know about, well, you know about him, but you, don't, you know more than about him. You know him. He goes on to say, and the energy of his resurrection. The definition of resurrection power depends on Christ's experience. Listen, the only model 
for resurrection is who? I'm going to give you one more chance to answer that. <laughs> the only model for resurrection is who? Jesus. Thank you. It's Jesus. Nobody else been resurrected. You have that power. Two things happen to you. First of all, when you first receive Christ, you, you get saved. When you commit your life to him, the same, listen, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. His spirit lives in you. Wow. And the second thing is that progressively, and that happens instantly, progressively, he changes the way we think and the way that we live. And the physical body, one of these days, is going to be transformed. Hallelujah. But you have the energy of the Holy Spirit in you. Now, some people are troubled by verse 11 because of Paul's iffiness. <laughs> you see the word if? If by any means I may attain to the resurrection. Now, do you really think Paul is wondering if he's going to make it? No. And so don't anybody let anybody tell you, well, see, Paul wasn't even sure he'd be resurrected. That is not what that means. What it means is you go back to chapter one and he said, there's a possibility I might be executed by the emperor. He said, I, I, you know, I don't know when I'm going to die. If I die now, okay. If I die later, okay. So but if by any means, you don't know when you're going to die. Some of you think you're going to die before you get out of here. But you, you don't know how old you are. Well, you mean I don't know how old I am. You don't know how old you are because you don't know when you're going to die. What if you're going to die this week? You're pretty old, aren't you? So Paul is saying, I'm not worried about making it. I don't know when it's going to be, but I do know this, that, that I have the power of his resurrection. Verse 10, he says, I have the example of his suffering. What an amazing truth this is. You see, the Jews tended to assume that suffering was the result of sin and was divine punishment. You find this in John chapter 9. It's what Job's friends persisted in telling him. <laughs> you must have done something really bad to have all this happen to you. But Paul is saying that he sees suffering in a different way. Our Lord voluntarily suffered to be obedient to the Father that we might have life. And as Paul suffers for Christ, he say, he's saying, I'm some way also suffering with Christ. There's a kind of sharing bonding here. I'm going to tell you, and you stand for Jesus, there will be some suffering or some persecution from time to time. You're in good company. Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. He also said, they didn't like me, they're not going to like you. 
That's not how he said it, but that's what he meant. And then in verse 10, we have the expiation of his death, the atonement. In verse 10, it says, being conformed to his death, Jesus died for us. Do you realize the only reason Jesus died was for you and me? He died for no other reason, just you and me. They didn't kill him. They didn't surprise him. They didn't take his life. We're getting close to that period where Jesus took on flesh, became one of us, lived a sinless life. And during the Passover time, when people would try to atone for their sin, Jesus walked into Jerusalem as the sinless Lamb of God and died for our sin. And God put on him the sin of the world. He paid for it. And now you have to receive that gift. So folks, I wish I could change your circumstances. I can't. And I didn't say that you have to walk around with some plastic Jesus freak smile on your face all the time. But during, no matter what's going on in your heart, you have this peace that says, I know who I belong to. I know who has me. I know where I'm going. Lord, I know you're in control. That's joy. If you don't have it, you're not going to get it from the church. You're not going to get it from religion. You're not even going to get it from doing good works. But when you receive Jesus, you get all of that. Would you bow your heads? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 